0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It is so good to see you. It's good to worship with you, sing worship and song. Um, before getting into the text, just a few words about this particular location. Um, as you know, we're Radiant Elementary. It's part of the Waukee School District, located in Urbandale. Uh Waukee's got this thing where they're in West Des Moines and Clive and Urbandale. They're just spreading out everywhere. And Lord willing, this is where we will be for months and years to come. And as I already said... We will continue to work on this space. We'll get projection. Uh, Things take time, and as resources and time do allow, we're going to make this more and more our home. And I was reminded by Philippians 4.19, which says this, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So the, the growth and the resources for this church is up to God. Now we are on God's mission. We joyfully participate in God's mission in this local church, but we ultimately know it is God who builds his church. Again, just a few thoughts before getting into the text. Just think about where we've been. We haven't even been a church for three years. That's coming up in October, October 28th to be exact. And since then, we've left a denomination and joined another denomination. We've met in 10 Locations radiant being number 11. Remember that coffee shop in Adel? (laughs) The first time we ever met. You remember uh, at Westwind, of course, right? That happened the very next week. We met there. COVID happened. And all of a sudden, we're online trying to figure that out. It's like, this is a whole new world, especially for a church plant. You remember when... We did drive-in church at the Powers House. I cannot, I will never forget the faces through those windows when we did drive-in church at the Powers House. That's that's location number four. What about Centennial Park? Now, I'm cheating a little bit. I'm I'm using each pavilion as a different location. Maybe you don't want to do it that way, but at least, you know, we got the open pavilion, we got the enclosed pavilion at Centennial Park. So I'm going to call that five and six. Number seven, Ridge Point Park. met there one time. Earlier this year, Robin Layla Lane's backyard, 4th of July. I'm going to call that 8. West Kirk, of course, and their generosity to Redemption Hill Church to provide a space for us until we navigated our current course to figure out where God was going to lead us next. I'm going to call that 8, or West Kirk 9, excuse me. Fox Creek Park, which we met several times. That's 10 and now Radiant Elementary. I don't know how you don't look at that, the facts, and, and come to the conclusion that God's hand is upon this church. He has provided and sustained this church in a season where many churches have shut their doors, when many pastors have walked away. And yet here we are. That is God's kindness. And I, and I want you to really see that as God's kindness. I've said this before, i it again, many of you already know this, the church is not a building, it is a people, but a consistent place to gather is important. It is important. In order to grow, we need to be consistent. We need to find n- new rhythms and routines for the church. And when we will work out any kinks along the way, there's no doubt about that, we will improve this space as time and resources allow. For for example, that buzzing over there. I'm already talking to Danny and Logan. How do we minimize that? Like I already said, the projection. Couldn't get that up and going. How do we take care of that? So slowly over time, week over week, we'll continue to leverage this space, use this space for the good of this church and for the glory of God. Most importantly, we're planted here right now, Radiant Elementary, to be a gospel light into our community. Now, many of you come from many different places, Ankinita, to Adel and everything in between. But how do we become a gospel light into the community? How do you catch that vision and that mission for yourself? So whether you're here or whether you're at home or at work, you recognize you're on God's mission to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most significantly, most importantly, that is why we planted Redemption Hill Church to tell others about the love of Jesus Christ. So I'll say more during announcements time about uh, what you can expect in the weeks ahead. But I'm going to pray. I'm going to thank God for his provision. And then we're going to get right into today's text, which one would not really think that talking about marriage, specifically out of Ephesians 5, would be like the ideal text when you get into a place that you hope to be long-term. But as you know, I like preaching through books of the Bible. I like to keep going, so we're going to look at Ephesians 5 and and pray that God would strengthen marriages this morning. So I invite you to pray with me. Oh God, we do thank you for your provision. You've been so good and so kind. And yes, at times it's been hard. We've had to continually pivot, but you've still been faithful. And so that is what we look to this morning. And we trust you will continue to be faithful to build your church. And so, we know it's yours, and we want to be faithful to do what we can to be a part of your mission. So in the weeks and months and years ahead, may we indeed be your ambassadors to a world that is broken. As we're going to see today, there are broken marriages that need a touch of your grace, mercy, and love. There are people who have a desire to be married, but aren't not, who need your peace. There's people who've been divorced, and there's hurting and pain, and they need your comfort from today's message. Would you provide that for all of us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I am fully aware that the Bible addresses um, topics like singleness, Divorce and other topics that are related to marriage. Fully aware of that, but because the primary preaching practice for me is to go through books of the Bible, we're going to really dial into marriage. And what I just prayed is what I hope I'm going to say, you know, verbally right now. I hope that God would use this particular passage to strengthen your marriage, to course correct if needed. I pray that for myself and for Cherise. We want to look at God's word and be taught by it. For much of my time, I'll be doing um, something called biblical theology. Let me just explain what that means. Biblical theology is an attempt to understand part of the Bible in in light of the whole. In other words, every verse of the Bible is connected to verses before and after, and every chapter in the Bible is connected to the book, and every book of the Bible is connected to a, a greater narrative throughout all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. you might be surprised to know that marriage, in particular marriage, is a theme threaded throughout the entire Bible. It's not like it just pops up in Ephesians 5 out of nowhere. That's not the case. Marriage is a theme threaded throughout the entire course of Scripture. So I'm going to spend some time actually looking at Genesis and then make my move to Ephesians 5. And then you know where I'm going to end when we do communion? The book of Revelation. That's how important the topic of marriage is to God. He begins with it, and then he ends with it. And I want to show how the two connect. And Ephesians does a really good job connecting it for us. So, I've often asked the question, what does it mean to be a Christian who lives in this world? What does it mean to be a Christian that sets him or her apart from their non-Christian friends, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, etc.? You know, the short answer, many of you know this, is that we worship and serve King Jesus. We believe we are exclusively saved by God, by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. You know, Ephesians 2.8. It is this particular belief that sets us apart from the world. When when God does that to you, Ephesians 2.8, he says, You are, you are mine. And he doesn't let go. Our faith sets us apart from a world that wants all truth to be relative. You have your truth, I have my truth. Even though they contradict, you can have whatever you want. But no, that's not what the Christian faith is. It's not relative. It is only when what is believed that sets us apart from the world and God. There's more, though. A radically changed life makes us different from the world. It's not just that instant transformation, but it's ongoing transformation. And have we not seen that since we turned the page from Ephesians 3 to Ephesians 4? When we walk in unity, Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16, when we walk in holiness, that's again Ephesians 4. When we walk in love, Ephesians 5, and walk as wise and not as unwise, God is glorified in your life as you live it out. What sets Christians apart from the world will be compelling to some, right? Some people will look at that and be like, whoa, I need some of that because my life is a complete mess. It's broken, and God's doing something in you. Some people are going to want that, and other people are going to be like, nah, peace out. Ephesians is a call for Christians to act distinct from the world so that God's glory would be seen in your life. Not only with what you believe, but with how you act behave. And what better way for you to display the glory of God than in and through your marriage? What better way to display the glory of God than in and through your marriage? In 21st century America, there are only a few other topics that cause a more visceral response than marriage. The Christian and biblical message of marriage, either, like I said, is either going to repel or compel people. Therefore, it is vital we are clear about what the Bible tells us about marriage. I am doing my level best not to tell you what Sean Powers believes about marriage, but what God believes about marriage. In this church, in our larger denomination, we have made it clear that we are, big theological word, complementarian. We are complementarian. We believe that complementarianism is not just a great theological idea. There's more to it. Complementarianism is about how to live in a manner worthy of the gospel in marriage. How do we honor God in our marriage? What does that look like? Here's part of chapter 27 of our confession of faith on marriage. It's just a small part. It's much more expansive. It says this, Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. It is not lawful for any man to have more than one wife, polygamy, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. God instituted marriage as one flesh union between one man and one woman. All other attempts, this is very exclusive, right? Hear this, all other attempts, all other attempts, at sexual unions are legitimate and contrary to God's good design. Don't tell me that doesn't go in the face of our culture. Complementarianism is the biblical perspective that God created men and women equal in person and for different roles so that men and women can complement one another. Ephesians 5 Verses 22 to 33, which is what Rob read, can only be understood in light of this larger context that I'm getting into. As I said, we need to go back to the beginning to know why Paul pens this passage the way he did. Let's go to Genesis 1, verses 26 to 27. I'm going to read a few verses from there. Then I'm going to go to, I'm going to just turn the page, go to Genesis 22, and look at a few verses there. These creation passages are foundational. Moreover, we will see how the New Testament dips back into Genesis 1 and 2 to explain marriage. Here's what we see in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. If you have your Bible, you can open up there. Hopefully next week we'll have some projection for you with the scripture. It says this, Then God said, let us make man in our, this important word, in our image. And he also says, in our likeness. Image and likeness are really important. And let them have dominion. Let them have dominion. Not just the male or the female, but let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and the livestock, and basically everything that creeps on the earth. Then it says in verse 27, next verse, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him. Here's the important factor here. Male and female, he created them. Men and women are created in God's image In likeness. And you see in Genesis 1 a complementary relationship between the man and the woman. They are both to have dominion over God's creation. Working together. How does the complementary nature of their relationship function? Well, for the answer, we need to keep reading Genesis 2, verses 18, and then I'm going to look at um, verse 23 and 24. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So we got, you know, God creating Adam from the dust. Here's a little bit of dust. God can do it. Created man. But he's like, it's not good for him to be alone. I will make him a helper. Important word here. Who make him a helper. Fit for him. But But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. Then the man said, this is at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's the whole scene where God puts Adam asleep, taking the rib out of Adam and creating a woman. Some people think that's audacious. Well, we can just go back to Adam was created from the dust. God can do it, and he did it. And it says in verse 24 of Genesis 24, of Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. We have biblical marriage language already in the book of Genesis and it says they shall become one flesh. God created Adam, but he was lonely. Something was missing in his life. Which is crazy to think about when you consider that Adam was with God. And yet... There was something missing. It's quite remarkable. Out of everything God created, there was still a sense He was not complete, not whole. And then God created Eve. She was created as a co-heir, but also as a as a helper to Adam. Complementarianism is gravely misunderstood by Christians. And non Christians, because the idea that a wife is to be a helper to a husband appeals appears unequal. Right? I want to dismiss that as I continue on, especially as we make our beeline to Ephesians five. But first, a story. Shortly after moving back to Minnesota from seminary in 2010, I attended Saint John's University. It's just north of Saint Cloud um, to do a second master's degree. And uh, if you don't know Saint John's, it's uh, Catholic, Benedictine. Um, I stood out like a sore thumb as a conservative, Bible-believing Christian. I had monks in my class. I had priests in my class. I had those who were vocally feminist in my class. Just a variety of people in my classes. And I took one particular class. It was called Patristics. It was basically study of early church fathers. And uh, we were talking about women in the early church. And a few of them were just just couldn't believe how men and women related to one another in the early church. Basically, a lot of the early church fathers were complementarian, and they would just couldn't believe it. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. I'm a complementarian. I'm a complementarian because that's what I read in Scripture. And I'll never forget this one gal who's sitting next to me. She was, I'll just call it my raging feminist friend. And she's like, how could you believe that? How could you believe that? She made an offhanded comment about about my marriage saying something like, I can't believe you treat your wife like that. And I assured her that my wife and I believed the same view regarding marriage. This individual was so disturbed that I think she thought that I locked Sharice up in the closet and I only let her out to do a few things like cook and clean and change diapers because we had young kids at the time. And I'll tell you what I told her. Nothing could be farther from the truth. I've never met a more gifted, capable, godly, and intelligent woman in my life. And it's my duty and privilege as her husband to see her flourish in her gifts while we walk out God's design in marriage, for marriage. So, like, after that conversation, my my classmate never spoke to me again. From her perspective... For Sharice to be a helper is degrading. From God's perspective, it's beautiful and life-giving. Where our worlds collided and divided, talking about my classmate, is with our separate meanings of the word equality and what quality has to do with a man and a woman in particular in marriage. The word equality gets thrown around a lot these days. Just read the newspaper. The culture says this about equality in marriage is given a Kind of generic definition. Could be more broad, could be more detailed, could be more nuanced. I get that. But let's just go with this. For man and woman to be equal, they need to receive a similar paycheck, and they need to contribute to society equally. Now, while I have no problem with working women, my wife works, this is a shallow view of equality. Often our culture equates equality with what a woman or man can or cannot do with the opposite sex as the point of comparison. That's not what God thinks. Do you know how much a stay-at-home mom, for example, makes? Zero. Zero dollars. And the culture's going to tell me and you that a wife who doesn't have a paycheck or a full-time job is not being treated equally? That's a load of garbage. Sharice, when she has always been a harder worker than me, for sure. But even when she wasn't working, she was working harder than me. She was raising our kiddos, which is of infinite value. Teaching our kids supports me, which is basically like having a full-time job. Gotta support that guy. My point is this. Equality is not given to us by culture, but equality is inherited in God's design. That is where we begin to understand equality between men and women. It has nothing to do with function and everything to do with being made in the image of God. Imago Dei. Complementarianism begins with knowing all men and all women are created in God's image and are equal before God. Don't let the culture tell you otherwise. Let me go back to my story for a moment. Although the conversation just kind of happened in the middle of class, I wish I could have asked my classmate, in retrospect, about Genesis 1, about Genesis 2, and what she thought about God's design for men and women at creation. God's design was perfect and good. And then I wish I would have asked her about Genesis 3, the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, humanity was infected with a sinful nature. When sin entered the world, God's design for a man and woman in marriage began to break. What was created beautiful is now tainted with sin. We should not be surprised that because of the fall, because of sin, marriage is twisted, degraded, and manipulated. Even in the best of marriages, it can be challenging and frustrating. It's like Adam and Eve took this beautiful piece of fine china, God's design, and they just chucked it against the ground. Pain for women increased regarding childbearing. We read that in Genesis 3. The ability of a man to work and provide for his family became difficult. Again, Genesis 3. What was supposed to be a beautiful, complementary marriage turned into conflict. More of that in Genesis 3. The fall created distortion. And here's how one theologian describes the consequences of the fall. And I quote The distortion was that Eve would now rebel against her husband's authority, and Adam would misuse that authority to rule forcefully and even harshly over Eve. Sin messed up everything. Now, don't be discouraged. Do not be discouraged, Christian. Even if you're going through hardships in your marriage right now. Do not be discouraged. The bad news helps us to understand the good news. The bad news helps us see the path back to God's design for marriage. And the path back is through the gospel. Here is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel restores what is broken. It restores what is broken. Has there been brokenness in your marriage? Well, God has something to say about that for you. The gospel takes what is ugly. It can make it beautiful. When you allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to affect your life, you, li- you live out God's design as a husband and a wife. Christ did not suffer and die so that your marriage would remain broken. Christ suffered, died, and rose from the dead so that you can apply the gospel to what is broken and move toward a path of reconciliation and restoration. Applying the gospel to your lives means that you need to to work toward the change that God Ask of you in your marriage. And as I said, it takes work. It takes work to live out God's design because there is a general deconstruction and disregard of God's design and his purpose all around us. Like the Bible's saying one thing, and you know, you put the word down and you go out to your, your place of employment or you hang out with your neighbors, and they're saying something totally different. And so it takes work for us. A husband is affected by how he leads his wife, and children because of sin. A wife is affected by how she responds to her husband because of sin. But it is, it is in this brokenness where the church must step in and display the good news of the gospel, the healing power of God through the gospel. The church can demonstrate God's design and purpose in marriage and be a part of seeing others receiving hope and healing and restoration. It wasn't long ago when Genesis 2.24 was assumed by our broader culture. Today, in years to come, it just needs to be stated explicitly. Biblical marriage is between one man and one woman. Genesis 2.24 is repeated in Ephesians 5.33 and is quoted twice by Jesus in the Gospels. So we read this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold, hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Moses, Paul, in Jesus, all have something to say about marriage. A man marrying another man, a woman marrying another woman, one man marrying multiple women is not a part of God's design. A man marrying a woman only to cheat on his wife is not a part of God's design. A woman or man who changes his or her gender to fulfill a desire or feeling is not a part of God's design. All this is sin because of the fall. I do not say all that with one ounce of ill will or hate To those who disagree with me, I say all this as a man who has been broken because of my own sin and who continues to rely on God's grace to see brokenness turned into beauty. With Genesis chapters 1 and 3 as kind of a foundation, let us move into the New Testament to see more specifics about a man and a woman in marriage. Uh, before looking at the details i want to remind you what we saw last week this is a really important point that kind of ties in many of the chapters that came before and chapters that come after living out the christian faith requires being filled with the spirit for you to be a godly husband to be a godly wife necessitates being filled with the holy spirit from my experience and from reading massive amount of pages on like biblical marriage there are two words in the bible which makes some men and women uncomfortable. <laughs> the culture has jettisoned, and some of the church, some of the churches out there have jettisoned and labeled these words as bad and bigoted. And we see them in Ephesians 5, do we not? I'm sure you saw them and read them, and you're like, whoa, what do we do with that? The words are headship and submission. It's a tragedy that some folks in the church have followed the culture and moved away from the beauty of biblical headship. And the beauty of biblical submission. These two words need to be redeemed, in my opinion. Can't let them go. We need to redeem them. When rightly understood, they fill in God in the glorious picture of God's design for marriage. The Apostle Paul, knowing exactly what God said in Genesis one to three, builds out God's design for a man and woman in marriage in Ephesians five. Here's Ephesians five, verses twenty 22- two. 24. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We're going to talk about that. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. There's a lot of people who are going to read that passage in Bristol, right? You know it, and I know it. Now, there isn't much debate about the comparison being made in the passage. A marriage between a man and a woman is a living picture, a living picture between what? Christ and the church. Paul says that the relationship between Christ and the church teaches us the nature of marriage between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. I mean, you step back, like that is a remarkable picture. It's a remarkable picture of marriage. Paul says in verse 31 that this idea that a man and a woman, a husband and wife, become one flesh is a mystery. How does one plus one equal one? That's not it's not supposed to happen like that. The math is a mystery. But now Paul says it's a mystery made known. It's a mystery made known. The mystery of marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. That is awesome. Where the wheels fall off the wagon for some people is how marriage properly reflects Christ's relationship to the church. Everyone loves comparing marriage to Christ and the church, but what does marriage functionally look like and why? What does marriage functionally look like and why? Well, let's ask the hard questions from Ephesians five. What does it mean for a husband and Christ to be the head of the wife, the church? That's the hard question. Here's another hard question. What does it mean for a wife or the church to submit to her husband as Christ does? I think we find is that male headship and female submission, husbandly headship and a wife's submission complement one another, and reflect the relationship between Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. And more significantly, it's a beautiful picture of Christ and his church. Okay, so what is male headship? The headship of a husband is a unique leadership position. A good husband works to establish order so that his wife and children can flourish. Fellas, that's what you want to do with your family. You want to create an environment in your home. Where your wife and your children are able to flourish to the glory of God. I mean, if you're looking for a definition of headship, hold on to that, I think. Husbands lead in such a way that cultivates an environment that his family can, like I said, flourish to the glory of God. Now, the Greek for headship is this word kephale. Uh, There are endless books and articles that try to explain this particular word. Let me give you the bottom line. Kephale, this word for headship, implies authority. For example, there are over 2,000 extra-biblical passages that use this particular word to describe a government that has authority over an individual or over a people. Head- headship conveys the same thing in Ephesians 5. The husband has authority over his wife. I would apply another word to headship, and that's leadership. Leadership. What we read in Genesis and Ephesians is a husband is created with a unique leadership capacity. It is not that a wife or a woman cannot lead. They can. And they do. Now, before the husband begins to nudge his wife to make sure she's paying attention, I want to mention what headship is not. And then I want to allow Ephesians 5 to elaborate God's design for headship. A husband demonstrating biblical headship does not lord over his wife. There is no room in God's design for a husband to exert authority in such a way that he places burdens upon her. Real biblical headship is when a husband sees the burden of his wife and he's like, you know what, how how can I take that particular burden from you? How can I help it's walking in the door after work realizing your wife's day may have been a lot more difficult than yours. Husbands, when you get home from work, you know, don't make a beeline to the couch. You need to find your wife and ask her, "What can I do to help?" But you know what? I'm saying this to myself as well. I'm saying this to myself as well. "What can I do to help, honey?" "What can I do with the kids?" What burdens are you carrying today that I can carry for you? And sometimes, fellas, just being real, it's just listening. It's, I mean, Maybe it's just me. It's just listening. Several years ago, I listened to a sermon on this passage, and the pastor said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, husbands, if you need a few minutes to recover from a long day at work, take a few minutes in the car before you walk in the front door. Because once you walk in that door, your ministry begins with your wife and your kids. And you are called to self-sacrificial love and care. Biblical headship is dialing into the needs of your wife. And if you have kids, your kids, so that they can demonstrate, so that you can demonstrate the love of Christ to them. You are their ambassador. Ephesians 5.2 fills out the call of a husband. says this, Husbands, love your wife. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Self-sacrificial headship is putting the needs of your wife over your needs just like Christ. Just think about the standard here. Just think about the standard, husbands. Just think about where God has placed the bar. It is not a low bar. It is a high bar. Husbands are to love like Jesus. What did Jesus do? He took on the burdens of the church and died for her. Biblical headship is anchored in self-sacrificial love. That's the anchor to being a husband. With Christ-like self-sacrificial love as an anchor, a husband leads, a husband protects, a husband provides for his wife, and if there's kids, doing the same for them. You know, if you hold the line on biblical marriage, critics will let you know about their disapproval. That will be there. But what if, what if we husbands became known for our self sacrificial love, right? Like just the husbands here at Redemption Hill Church. What if we became known for that? That would be amazing. That would be compelling to a world where brokenness abounds in marriages. But here's also the reality being a godly husband is hard, it is hard because the bar is high. A married man needs Jesus to be able to lead his wife and his family well. Guys, you know that. We need Jesus. We desperately need Jesus to lead well. Frankly, the culture wants to emasculate you, men. The world around you tells you to give in to your desires by objectifying a woman who is not your wife instead of pursuing marital faithfulness. Being a husband of the world is easy. Being a man of God is challenging, and it requires sacrifice. It requires those things, but it is good. It is good. Okay, there's much more I could say about headship, but I've got to move on. At least see this. Biblical headship is not a consequence of the fall, as many would suggest, but it's a part of God's design. We see it right in Genesis 1 and 2, and it's for us to apply today. And we see how Ephesians 5 picks up on headship. From Genesis. Now, what about the word submit in verse 24, Ephesians 5? How in the world is submission a part of God's design for marriage? If there is ever a word that needs explanation, it's actually this one. You might remember from last week when we came across verse 21, it says, We are to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. We are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, we have a sense from Holy Scripture that we, collectively, as a local church, are to submit to one another, but now we read in the following verses three separate pictures of godly and good submission. We're talking about marriage today, next week is parenting, and then we've got to deal with the submission that we see between a master and a bondservant. What does that mean? How do we think through that biblically? Well, look at verse 14, if we of Ephesians 5. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, before going any further, let's connect this passage to the, what we saw in Genesis. It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Not only do we have an established order by the man being created first and then the woman, but the woman was created with the purpose to help the husband. As he leads. Implicit in God's design for the woman from Genesis is submission to her husband. Submission is implied, but it's made crystal clear in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3.18. Now, when, when some folks read Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, the idea of a wife being a helper and submitting to a husband, it feels uncomfortable. Right? That's because there's, there's a massive misunderstanding about what biblical submission is. However, let me say this about my marriage, and a bit about the complementary nature of my marriage. I'm a complete and utter disaster without my wife. That's a true true statement. I'm okay with it. I'm a complete and utter disaster without Sharice. Just ask the people who are closest to me. Yes, my my mother-in-law is here. She knows that to be true. I'm a mess without Sharice. It would take me hours to list off the things that would not get done unless, I, unless God gave Sharice to me. I mean, I'm still alive because of Sharice, because I probably would have done something dumb and blown something up. While preparing for this sermon, I shared with Sharice the difficulties of asking all my thoughts about preaching uh, on this particular passage in only like 40 minutes. And then she responded and said, Sean, the church doesn't need to hear from God, or doesn't need to hear from you, they need to hear from God. You know, after that, I had this thought, what a wonderful helpmate. What a wonderful wife. For for Sharice to be my helper in marriage does not lessen her value. Instead, submitting and helping affirms the beauty of God's design for women in marriage. It displays the glory of God. Remember, a wife submitting to a husband is a lived-out picture of Christ of the church submitting to Christ, excuse me. I'm going to go allow a woman to express this biblical truth. It's uh, Gloria Furman. She said this, The woman is equal with the man. Her strength and her intelligence are not in conflict with her unique role of voluntary submission to her husband's leadership. Together, they are co-heirs. Eve's help gladly orientated toward Adam's leadership. That's a great quote. So ladies and gentlemen, complementarian submission does not mean a wife is of any less equal is any less created in God's image. She is not inferior, a doormat, or controlled. A husband who treats his wife in such a way needs to repent to God and then to her. Conversely, complementary submission is the wife acknowledging a husband's unique God-given leadership and authority for her and the family. Biblical submission includes the wife coming alongside the husband to help lead the family. So I understand that what I've said so far can be wildly controversial in our culture. But remember, I'm just the messenger reporting the facts from God's word. Just consider the greatest act of submission ever. The greatest act of submission ever. Jesus, Jesus has demonstrated to the church the holiness of godly submission. Jesus, while he was praying to God the Father on the Mount of Olives, John 17, knowing that the road before him would lead to his death on a cross, said this, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus submitted to the Father. What a beautiful, gospel-saturated picture this is for your marriage. At the cross, think about this, at the cross, we see self-sacrificial love and submission merge. These two values that we see in Ephesians 5, merged at the cross. We've got to redeem the word submission from the culture. Just like the story I told you about at the beginning uh, about my classmate, culture is confusing what is supposed to be beautiful and making it ugly. However, in this church, we can allow God to work in our lives so that God can continue to redeem marriages. Everyone in this room comes to God broken, broken. And it is by and through the gospel where brokenness turns into beauty. It's through the cross of Christ where the hurting can find healing. Here is what I'm willing to guarantee I know marriage is hard. I know marriage is hard because I've lived it. Coming up on 15 years, Sharice and I have gone through some tough patches, right? You have as well. Sin abounds. Pride takes root in the heart when there's conflict. I understand that there is brokenness. Many of you desire solutions to the troubles of your marriage. If you husbands lead out of sacrificial love, and if you wives are willing to joyfully submit like the church, you will begin to see healing by the grace of God. Yeah, I know more work needs to be done. There's particulars that need to be worked out. I totally get that. I understand that hard conversations will need to take place. A third party might be prudent to help you speak to one another instead of past one another. Sinful habits may need to be overcome, but foundations are critical. Standing upon God's foundational design is the way back to flourishing in marriages. I know that what I've said what I'm for also implies what I'm against, and I get it. When it comes to God's design for marriage, we need to be precise. But we also want to be a church that is a hospital for the hurting, right? We want to be a hospital for the hurt. We want to be known for our acts of love, grace, and mercy. We want to treat every individual and every couple who comes into this church as an image bearer of God, regardless of what they've gone through, regardless of their background, regardless of what they believe about marriage and sexuality and gender. They're an image bearer of God. They are welcome to come and hear the gospel, to come and hear the word preached. We want to be a hospital for the hurting. I want every couple who comes to this church with marriage struggles to know this is the place where a bunch of other needy people come to meet together to look to God for help. Because I don't got it all figured out. I'm willing to bet you don't got it all figured out. And we all need God's help. We need His grace to walk out marriage. This is a place where God specializes in redeeming and restoring marriages if you allow God and the church to meet you right where you are at. So I don't know all the things you come to church today with. I don't know the things going on in your marriage right now. Well, what I do know that God wants to meet you right where you're at to grow you more and more into the likeness of Christ so that you can model what we see in Ephesians 5, the beauty of Ephesians 5. God is an expert at turning brokenness into beauty. He delights in in taking what is oily and ugly and making it clean, especially in marriage. Let's pray.